Make a career of humanity. Commit yourself to the noble struggle for equal rights. You will make a greater person of yourself, a greater nation of your country, and a finer world to live in. Those words appear on the inscription wall at the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial in Washington, D.C. In the fall of 2011, World Footprints attended celebrity events with the King family to reflect on Dr. King's legacy and commemorate the MLK Memorial. We have not achieved uh, anywhere near fully uh, what my father hoped uh, to see a carol. October 16, 2011, the 16th anniversary of the Million Man March. President Barack Obama joined thousands on the National Mall at the official dedication. And that is why he belongs on this mall. Because he saw what we might become. We live the MLK Memorial opening as we remember the dream of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. The Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial lies along the center line of leadership that extends from the Lincoln Memorial to the Jefferson Memorial on Washington's National Mall. At 30 feet in height, the sculpture of MLK on the Stone of Hope is taller than the statues of Lincoln and Jefferson by some 11 feet. Throughout the next hour on World Footprints Radio, We'll revisit conversations we had with celebrities and newsmakers during the dedication ceremonies in the fall of 2011. People like Ambassador Andrew Young, Layla Hathaway, and the Reverend Jesse Jackson will share their thoughts and memories about Dr. King. Also coming up on World Footprints, we'll share music and remarks from the official dedication on the National Mall as thousands gathered in Washington, D.C. to witness history and honor Dr. King. You'll hear remarks from Rabbi Israel Dresner, Stevie Wonder, and America's first African-American president, Barack Obama, as they reflected on Dr. King's legacy and public service. But first, some of those who walked with and beside Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. offer their thoughts. Former CBS News correspondent Dan Rather, who covered the civil rights movement, Reverend Jesse Jackson, Congressman John Lewis, Ambassador Andrew Young, and former Ambassador and Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. Heroes are honored in their time. Legends live through the ages. While considering Dr. King's legacy... An obscure poem called Lifters and Leaners comes to mind. Dr. King was a world-class heavyweight lifter. While thousands leaned on him, I never saw his shoulders give way or his back bend. He was as brave a man as I have ever seen. The historical weight of this long overdue monument reminds us we must be lifters now. In the 1960s, as today, divisiveness was based on fear and prejudice and misinformation. Now, with the constant 24-hour news cycle, the power of misinformation has increased. We must remind ourselves that intelligence trumps ignorance every time. And when given a choice and all the facts, people make good decisions. 
But that leads us to a problem Dr. King faced 50 years ago, one that is worse today, and that is the corporatization, the politicalization, and the trivialization of the news. Dr. King once spoke candidly with me about news coverage of the civil rights movement nationwide, but especially in cities such as Atlanta and Jackson. The first problem was that there was so little news coverage at all, anywhere. And he was also concerned that Southern affiliate stations would persuade the networks to tone down, if not eliminate, coverage that went out to the rest of the country. At the time, frankly, I didn't feel his concerns were warranted. The then owners of my network and my bosses in New York were rock-ribbed when it came to reporting the news without fear or favor to anyone, including their own affiliates. And yet, in retrospect, I can't ignore that the CBS affiliate at that time in Atlanta, Dr. King's hometown, refused to carry some CBS news reports about the movement in 1962. They censored them. Today, different owners and many big money special interests are more closely intertwined with, more colluding with, big political special interests than ever for their own, not the people's purposes. In Dr. King's time, his main battle was against racial injustice, a battle far from over. But now, added to that, is the fight against greed and for economic justice. This time, we judge people not on the content of their character, but on the color of their money. Once again, once again, we have Americans outside looking in. This time, many people of all races and creeds feel stuck in a rickety, rudderless boat of economic injustice and are struggling to make their voices heard. Many in white America supported desegregation, but didn't support the demonstrations and passive resistance that Dr. King had learned from Thoreau and Gandhi. This created a kind of ambivalence on the part of many white Americans, and it gave some unscrupulous figures in local, state, and federal government the opportunity to skew the news and press coverage their way. Does this not sound familiar? The lifters, such as Dr. King, must have felt the weight of a million injustices, but hewn like this stone likeness, Dr. King was strong and able to carry the weight. For every lifter, there are hundreds of leaners, but on this day, standing in front of the statue of an American hero, icon, and legend, we are reminded we must all be lifters now. This is World Footprints Radio. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick with my wife, Tanya, and we are remembering Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. and revisiting our coverage of the MLK Memorial opening in 2011. We just heard from former CBS anchor Dan Rather. Now we will enjoy remarks from some of the people who walked beside Dr. King and continue to carry on his legacy today, starting with the Reverend Jesse Jackson. I was blessed to be a part of his corps of disciples who worked, organized, marched, and prayed with him. Here we are today, 132 miles from Jamestown, where the slave 
ships landed. 400-year journey for 132 miles. I remember my last birthday with Dr. King, January 15, 1968. We spent that day planning a poor people's campaign, a march on Washington, a poor people's campaign to occupy the mall. We were willing to engage in civil disobedience, to go to jail and do whatever was necessary in the nation's capital to get the attention of the government to shift from war in Vietnam, killing and being killed, to a war on poverty at home, killing and being healed. In his last Sunday morning, a sermon delivered to the Washington National Cathedral four days before his assassination, so the king said that we are coming to Washington to demand that the government address itself on the problem of poverty. Answering the rhetorical question of why such a gesture was necessary, so the king declared that it is our experience that the nation doesn't move around questions of genuine equality for the poor and for the black people until it is confronted massively and dramatically in terms of direct action. The image of confrontational king may be pleasing, may not be pleasing to those who seek to wash the blood stains from history, but is useful to those who value the truth of king's life more than the myth of the man. So the king argued that racial justice is not enough in a burning house when you're living with recycled poverty and pain. Today I'm convinced he would be appreciative of this monument, but sad. Sad today because Congress is in rebellion and states and cities are facing intense pain. Maybe only the 14th Amendment can bail us out that Congress will not. Sad because of too much concentrated wealth subsidized and born of government protection, too much poverty born of government neglect, too many expensive wars, too many children killing children, too many jobs leaving, and too much drugs coming. We can end malnutrition now. We can forgive student loan debt right now. Though the king would be sad that America had a redemptive moment of history, of historic proportions in 2008, Elected President Barack Obama. And yet that redemption has been met with unrelenting retribution, retaliation, venom, and unprecedented opposition. The many seem willing to sink the ship just to destroy the captain. We must be better than that. Congressman John Lewis also reflected on his time with Dr. King. Thank you for building a monument, a monument to peace, to love and nonviolence resistance on the front yard of America to symbolize the cornerstone of our true democracy. It was 48 long years ago when thousands of us yearning for justice and freedom stood a short distance from here in the shadow of the Lincoln Memorial. Many of us were fresh from the jails of a stone far south of the front line of the struggle for human dignity in America. We gathered there in peace with our hearts in our hands, hoping to see some sign that our cries would be heard through the cold marble walls of this distant capital. Martin Luther King, Jr., this man, this brother, the citizen of America, the citizen of the world, was never 10 
in the program lineup. I was number six. Of those who spoke that day, I'm the only one still around. Dr. King was our leader. He never, ever asked us to do anything that he would not do. He was arrested, jailed, beaten, and constantly harassed. His home was bombed. He was stabbed. He suffered the slings and arrows of hate in a grassroots struggle to prove that love had eternal power to overcome the limitation of hate. Had it not been for the philosophy of peace, the philosophy of nonviolence that he preached, and his insistence on the nonviolent resistance based on brotherly love, this would be a different nation. We would be living in a different place today. But Martin Luther King Jr. must be looked upon as one of the founding fathers of the new America. But this man, this one man, not only freed a people, but he liberated a nation. Ambassador Andrew Young offered some comic relief. Forgive me for starting out with a triviality. But you think of Martin Luther King as a giant of a man. But the one complex he had was a complex about his height. He was really just five feet seven, and he was always getting upset with tall people who looked down on him. Now he's 30 feet tall looking down on everybody. (laughs) But he'd be the first to tell you that he didn't give his life for a statue. He gave his life for the least of these God's children. Finally, former U.N. Ambassador and Secretary of State Madeleine Albright shares her thoughts. He was a man who spoke to all races, nations, genders, and creeds and to every generation. The words that once filled Atlanta's Ebenezer Baptist Church and that were proclaimed from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial have not lost any of their power. And the message that ultimately prevailed over enormous odds in Birmingham, Montgomery, and Selma is vital wherever people yearn to live together in dignity, freedom, and peace. Dr. King was as we all know, a dreamer. But this does not mean that he was naive. In his career, he was beaten, thrown into jail, jeered at, spied on, and threatened. While still in seminary, he wrote about the viciousness of racism, and it made him doubt the essential goodness of man. A month before his untimely death, he preached in Atlanta that life is a continual story of shattered dreams. And he spoke often from the pulpit about the war that rages within each of us between our nobler inclinations and the temptations of evil. Dr. King had seen too much of life to believe in the finality of any victory or in the moral purity of any nation or people. His knowledge of human character and his realism about the obstacles to progress make even more compelling the prescription that he offered, hope, faith, commitment, and compassion towards one another. He knew 
that a world of peace and justice could not be achieved by small steps or by minor adjustments to our thinking and policies. He told us that such a world could not be invented even by the most startling advances of modern technology. And he warned us that we could not break through as a society if we were always looking around to see what everyone else was doing and so that we would be shielded from the criticism that true leaders face. Dr. King did not ask us to become a flock of good sheep. He asked us to join in creating a revolution, a nonviolent revolution based on the principles of true democracy, a revolution grounded in our need for one another and in our recognition that we are equal, not because we're all the same, but because we are equal in our intrinsic dignity and worth. For more information about the MLK Memorial, visit nps.gov backslash MLKM or visit this show page on worldfootprints.com for a direct link. Martin Luther King III reflected on his thoughts about his father during the MLK Memorial Dedication Week. This moment, I think, first of all, means that uh, our nation celebrates, in addition to our presidents and our war memorials, now a man who represented peace and uh, love and justice. Uh, And hopefully it inspires us to become a much better nation because we have not achieved uh, anywhere near fully uh, what my father hoped uh, to see occur. We've made great strides, but uh, when we look at three issues that he talked about wanting to eradicate, which are poverty, racism, and militarism, poverty is growing, unfortunately, uh, because of a terrible economy. Uh, Racism is better. We have a lot of work still to do. And certainly in the area of militarism, we're involved in two or three wars ourselves uh, as we speak. And um, uh, we must find a way to to elevate the the standard um, if we're going to continue to provide leadership as a a democracy. Uh, I don't know that we will always be successful by using uh, warring methods. What would you tell these young people their responsibility is in order to to continue the legacy that your father served? Well, I I think that um, there are, I'll put it in a form of a quotation, 
And, you know, I think every generation has its calling. Uh, when we look at these issues that are impacting, I mean, young people are going uh, to colleges and universities and graduating without job opportunities. And I, I think that, in a real sense, uh, we are we are focused in the wrong direction. We we're focused on reality television. Some of that, most of that, not as counterproductive. It is a form of entertainment, but everybody has to do just a little to make our nation, I think, better. Um, and the quotation that I often use is, be ashamed to die until you've won a victory for humanity. Now, that does not mean that you have to win a victory for our world or for our nation. You can win a victory in your school. You can win a victory in your neighborhood. Television host Roland Martin served as Master of Ceremony at the official dedication on the National Mall. One of the speakers he introduced was Rabbi Israel Dresner, a man who was once known as the most arrested rabbi in America because of his civil rights work. In America. Shalom, peace. I thank God that I was alive during the middle of the 20th century when a prophet arose in America who was able to bring down the American walls of Jericho, the walls of segregation, and Jim Crow, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. I thank God that I was able to stand with Dr. King, march with him, go to jail with him, and most of all, get to know him personally and call him friend. Dr. King was truly a genius, and not just spiritually, ethically, intellectually, but he was practically a genius in terms of politics and economics. He understood that in the United States, where at that time 85% of the population was white, the one-ninth of Americans, a little over 11%, who were then called Negroes, not African Americans, could not bring down the walls by themselves. They needed supporters in the white in the community. the the multitudes gathered to hear songs. And he sought, out, he sought out those segments of the white community whom he knew would support the movement. You will recall that at the end of the great Eye of a Dream speech, he says, and when we allow freedom to ring, we will speed up that day when all of God's children, blacks and whites, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing together in the words of that old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. He, he knew that that an alliance between Jews and Negroes and blacks was really necessary. Jews were only about 4% of the white community. 
But thank God, just as last night at the gala, some of you were there at the dinner, all of the corporations who had contributed money to build this magnificent monument took pride in the fact that they had given a million or two million or three million dollars of their billions of dollars. I want to take pride in the group that I came from, who next to blacks, I think were the leading group in the civil rights movement, namely the Jewish community. Mr. Martin said that the Freedom Riders who rode the buses in 1961, I was one of them, half of them were white. But 50% of the whites who were arrested in the Freedom Rides were Jewish. We were only 4% of the white community, not 50%. In the Mississippi summer of 19, the Freedom Summer of 1964, half of all the protesters who were sent to Parchment Prison were white. 50% of those whites, not 4%, were Jews. I'm very proud of that. Jews throughout the movement in 61, 62, 63, 64, 65 provided half of the whites, even though we were only 4% of the whites in the country. So I want to take pride the way General Motors did last night at the gala and all of the other big corporations. In those days, they weren't giving any money to the movement. They weren't giving any bodies to the movement to go to jail and protest. You're listening to World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. We are enjoying remarks by Rabbi Israel Dresner during the official dedication of the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial. Visit our website at worldfootprints.com to enjoy more MLK Memorial dedication notes. When President Lyndon Johnson appointed Thurgood Marshall to the federal uh, judiciary, he had to step down as the uh, head of the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund. His longtime assistant replaced him, a Jewish lawyer named Jack Greenberg, who continued to head the NAACP Legal Defense Fund for many, many years. The highest award that the NAACP gives is every year the Spingarn Medal. They give it to one black person who has contributed the most to the advancement of blacks in America. Spingarn was a Jew who was president of the NAACP for almost 30 years in its early days. I'm very proud of the participation of my people in the movement. Now, not all Jews were saints, any more than all everybody were saints. When I used to go to jail in 61 and 62, 63 and 64, I would come home to Springfield, New Jersey, to my little congregation where Dr. King spoke on two occasions in 63 and 66. And a a past president of my congregation, Layman, would introduce a resolution to commend the rabbi for living up to the highest ideals and values of prophetic Judaism. I would have to leave the board meeting when they discussed it, and an hour later he would call me up and say, the meeting went on for an hour, Rabbi. We got it through, but it wasn't unanimous. (laughs) So that not every Jew was a saint any more than anybody, any group provides saints. But the Jewish-black coalition in the 60s, blacks led it, of course, but Jews were in the forefront of the whites who participated, was absolutely crucial to winning the struggle. You will remember 
that three young freedom workers in during the Mississippi summer in 64 were murdered by the Ku Klux Klan in Philadelphia, Mississippi. Their bodies were hidden for seven weeks, if you remember, until the, F the FBI found the bodies. Two of those were Jews, Andrew Goodman, whose mother I knew very well, and Michael Schwerner. The third was a black young man, James Cheney. That alliance really has continued. In 2008, 57.5% of all non-Jewish white people in America voted for McCain. 57.5%. 41% of non-Jewish white people voted for Obama. 1.5% voted third party, you know. The only white group that voted for Obama and not 51-49, but 78-21 with 1% for third party, were Jews. I'm very proud of my group. Dr. King knew that we needed a coalition of white people and black people, of Jews and Christians. Today he would tell us, every minority in America has to stand together. Blacks, Latinos, Asians, American and Native American Indians, Jews, all other non Muslims, Buddhists, uh, 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 Hindus, etc., etc. To read more about Rabbi Israel Dresner and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., find direct links on this show page on worldfootprints.com. Listening to World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Coming up, we will have remarks by President Barack Obama from the official dedication of the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial. We will also share remarks from Archbishop Desmond Tutu and South African Ambassador Abraham Rasul. The MLK Memorial dedication was originally planned for the 48th anniversary of King's I Have a Dream speech. However, an earthquake in the Mid Atlantic, which was followed by Hurricane Irene, pushed the official dedication of the memorial to October 16th. This day coincided with the 16th anniversary of the Million Man March. If you want to learn more about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the memorial dedication, or if you want more travel experiences beyond this radio show, we invite you to visit our website, worldfootprints.com, where you can peruse our library of radio shows, articles, and more. You can also find links to us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Bishop Desmond Tutu spent his life in defense of human rights for the oppressed. Like Dr. King, Archbishop Tutu was a recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize. He sent a special message in honor of the MLK dedication. Welcome to the first of the events celebrating the dedication of the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial. 
I regret not being able to attend in person, but I'm honored to be able to bring you greetings to share on this historic occasion. I'm one of the millions who owe their freedom to Dr. King's advocacy of democracy, justice, hope, and love. Dr. King's teachings inspired and established a new era of civil rights in America. His spirit has encouraged new democracies around the world, including here in South Africa. And the power of his legacy continues to inspire and guide people searching for freedom and equality. This wonderful memorial would permanently stand in the heart of America's capital city, but the values it represents will reach and resound around the world. For those who stood with Dr. King and heard him speak his prophetic words, it must be hard to believe that 48 years have passed since he shared his dream on the steps of the memorial to America's great emancipator. We have waited a very long time for this moment. But if there is one lesson of Dr. King's we must always remember, it is that what is good and what is right will always one day prevail. This lesson has kept hope alive in many of the world's darkest corners and it has encouraged those following in Dr. King's footsteps to continue his commitment to resolving conflict without violence. Thanks to Dr. King's wisdom and sacrifice, our world is a freer and more peaceful one. And every day, we see the legacy of his hope and vision that people around the world seek freedom, equality, and opportunity through non-violence. This magnificent memorial to Dr. King is well-deserved, and the world needs the messages it enshrines today as much as ever. This is World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. We are revisiting our coverage of the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Dedication. We just heard from Archbishop Desmond Tutu, and now another man who experienced prison in the fight against human injustice, the Honorable Abraham Razul, the South African Ambassador to the United States. Gathered in Washington to memorialize in stone the values for which Martin Luther King stood and died. And this is a long time in the memory of some, but it could not be more time yet that we do it in this era to memorialize those values because we live in a world where the values of truth, peace, Forgiveness, compassion, reconciliation, 
and so forth, are seen as weaknesses. Where they are denigrated, where they are seen as untradable values, and that values of exigency, of pragmatism, and harshness and militarism seem to be on the up. These values of reconciliation, peace, truth, forgiveness, and compassion are the values for which Martin Luther King lived and are the foundations from which apartheid was defeated. They are in the DNA of leaders like Albert Lutuli, Archbishop Tutu, F.W. de Klerk, and Nelson Mandela, and many others who were produced in the cauldron of the fight against apartheid. They confronted the violence of apartheid with the non-violence espoused by Mahatma Gandhi and practiced by Martin Luther King. They confronted the division, the separation and the segregation of apartheid with a reconciliation that Martin Luther King did not fully see the fulfillment of, but that South Africa today tries to hold up in a world that is polarized in so many other ways. He confronted the conflict of apartheid with the notion and the values of peace and coexistence that Martin Luther King dreamt of and saw on the mountaintop, but that Archbishop Tutu, Nelson Mandela and others would start building on the southern tip of Africa. Add to this the values of truth, the values of Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela, and Tutu, so not as a commodity to compromise, but as something that they could trade for reconciliation. Hence the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, that if you told the truth, you would not be benched against, but you would be reconciled with. The truth truly would set you free. South Africa is regarded as a miracle. What we do assert in South Africa that our transition and our transformation was divinely inspired, but not a miracle out of reach of ordinary human beings. South Africa and the life of Dr. Martin Luther King has to confirm for us that human beings are capable of being good, that human beings are capable of opting for soft values that are powerful and don't always have to slide in the harshness of militarism and of violence. The example that runs like a golden thread from Asia to Gandhi to North America through Martin Luther King to Africa through a number of leaders culminating in Nelson Mandela tells us that faith is not only the rituals of worship, nor the polarizing claims of exclusivity, but that faith is the constant iteration that our vertical relationship with God must translate into horizontal relationships of benefit to humankind and goodness to all human beings. To learn more about the struggles against apartheid in South Africa, visit this show page at worldfootprints.com. 
Singer Layla Hathaway, daughter of the late Donnie Hathaway, offered her thoughts on Martin Luther King Jr. Layla, thank you so much thank for joining you. me today. This is an exciting event, and what will you be doing here today? I'm going to be singing one of my father's songs called Someday Will I Be Free. I remember that song. I grew up with your father. And speaking of your father, you know, you and I are quite young. Yeah, so we, we, in, our, in our teens. Yes, thank you. Uh, so we didn't necessarily grow up during the civil rights era. What would your father think of today, and what, would you, what message would you have for the younger people who really don't understand what segregation and what the struggles yeah. have been? Um, you know, there's a certain amount of education that needs to happen in every household, in every school, uh, in terms of our kids, and that means black American kids and American kids in general because it's the history of our country. Not only our people, it's the history of our country. And so I think that uh, my father would be very proud to be here today. I think he would be very proud that his song became sort of a part of this movement and that I'm here to perform it. Amen. And, and, and what would you say to the younger people in order to keep these dreams alive? Because there's still struggle. Yeah, I would say to educate yourself. I think there's so many of us who don't know what happened, or we've seen it dramatized in a movie, to really educate yourself and to read a book every now and again, it's going to change your life. Leila Hathaway, thank you so much. Thank you. Decades after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., America elected its first African-American president, Barack Hussein Obama. President Obama walked past the King Memorial inscription wall with his family towards the dedication stage to deliver remarks. The significance of that moment wasn't lost on anyone. An earthquake and a hurricane may have delayed this day, but this is a day that would not be denied. For this day, we celebrate Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s return to the National Mall. In this place, he will stand for all time among monuments to those who fathered this nation and those who defended it. A black preacher, no official rank or title, who somehow gave voice to our deepest dreams and our most lasting ideals. A man who stirred our conscience and thereby helped make our union more perfect. Now, Dr. King would be the first to remind us that this memorial is not for him alone. The movement of which he was a part depended on an entire generation of leaders. Many are here today, and for their service and their sacrifice, we owe them our everlasting gratitude. This is a monument to your collective achievement. Some giants of the civil rights movement, like Rosa Parks and Dorothy Height, Benjamin Hooks, Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth, they've been taken from us these past few years. This monument attests to their strength and their courage 
And while we miss them dearly, we know they rest in a better place. And finally, there are the multitudes of men and women whose names never appear in the history books. Those who marched and those who sang, those who sat in and those who stood firm, those who organized and those who mobilized, all those men and women who through countless acts of quiet heroism helped bring about changes few thought were even possible. By the thousands, said Dr. King, faceless, anonymous, relentless young people, black and white, have taken our whole nation back to those great wells of democracy which were dug deep by the Founding Fathers in the formulation of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. It is right for us to celebrate Dr. King's marvelous oratory, but it is worth remembering that progress did not come from words alone. Progress was hard. Progress was purchased through enduring the smack of billy clubs and the blast of fire hoses. It was bought with days in jail cells and nights of bomb threats. For every victory during the height of the Civil Rights Movement, there were setbacks and there were defeats. We forget now, but during his life, Dr. King wasn't always considered a unifying figure. Even after rising to prominence, even after winning the Nobel Peace Prize, Dr. King was vilified by many, denounced as a rabble-rouser and an agitator, a communist and a radical. He was even attacked by his own people, by those he felt he was going too fast or those who felt he was going too slow by those who felt he shouldn't meddle in issues like the Vietnam War or the rights of union workers. We know from his own testimony the doubts and the pain this caused him and that the controversy that would swirl around his actions would last until the fateful day he died. In other words, when met with hardship, when confronting disappointment, Dr. King refused to accept what he called the isness of today. He kept pushing towards the oughtness of tomorrow. And so as we think about all the work that we must do, rebuilding an economy that can compete on a global stage, and fixing our schools so that every child, not just some, but every child gets a world-class education, and making sure that our health care system is affordable and accessible to all and that our economic system is one in which everybody gets a fair shake and everybody does their fair share. Let us not be trapped by what is. We can't be discouraged by what is. We've got to keep pushing for what ought to be. The America we ought to leave to our children, mindful that the hardships we face are nothing compared to those Dr. King and his fellow marchers faced 50 years ago, and that if we maintain our faith in ourselves and in the possibilities of this nation, there is no challenge we cannot surmount. You're listening to World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick, and we're listening to the MLK Memorial dedication remarks given by President Barack Obama. For more information about the MLK Memorial and to continue your travels with us, 
visit worldfootprints.com. And so at this moment, when our politics appear so sharply polarized and faith in our institutions so greatly diminished, we need more than ever to take heed of Dr. King's teachings. He calls on us to stand in the other person's shoes, to see through their eyes, to understand their pain. He tells us that we have a duty to fight against poverty even if we are well off, to care about the child in the decrepit school even if our own children are doing fine, to show compassion toward the immigrant family with the knowledge that most of us are only a few generations removed from similar hardships. To say that we are bound together as one people and must constantly strive to see ourselves in one another is not to argue for a false unity that papers over our differences and ratifies an unjust status quo. As was true 50 years ago, as has been true throughout human history, those with power and privilege will often decry any call for change as divisive. They'll say any challenge to the existing arrangements are unwise and destabilizing. Dr. King understood that peace without justice was no peace at all. That aligning our reality with our ideals often requires the speaking of uncomfortable truths and the creative tension of nonviolent protests. But he also understood that to bring about true and lasting change, there must be the possibility of reconciliation. That any social movement has to channel this tension through the spirit of love and mutuality. If he were alive today, I believe he would remind us that the unemployed worker can rightly challenge the excesses of Wall Street without demonizing all who work there. That the businessman can enter tough negotiations with his company's union without vilifying the right to collectively bargain. He would want us to know we can argue fiercely about the proper size and role of government without questioning each other's love for this country. With the knowledge that in this democracy, government is no distant object, but is rather an expression of our common commitments to one another. He would call on us to assume the best in each other rather than the worst, and challenge one another in ways that ultimately heal rather than wound. In the end, that's what I hope my daughters take away from this monument. I want them to come away from here with a faith in what they can accomplish when they are determined and working for a righteous cause. I want them to come away from here with a faith in other people and a faith in a benevolent God. This sculpture, massive and iconic as it is, will remind them of Dr. King's strength, but to see him only as larger than life would do a disservice to what he taught us about ourselves. He would want them to know that he had setbacks, because they will have setbacks. He would want them to know that he had doubts because they will have doubts. 
He would want them to know that he was flawed because all of us have flaws. It is precisely because Dr. King was a man of flesh and blood and not a figure of stone that he inspires us so. His life, his story tells us that change can come if you don't give up. He would not give up no matter how long it took because in the smallest hamlets and the darkest slums, he had witnessed the highest reaches of the human spirit. Because in those moments when the struggle seemed most hopeless, he had seen men and women and children conquer their fear. Because he had seen hills and mountains made low and rough places made plain and the crooked places made straight and God make a way out of no way. And that is why we honor this man. Because he had faith in us. And that is why he belongs on this mall. Because he saw what we might become. That is why Dr. King was so quintessentially American. Because for all the hardships we've endured, for all our sometimes tragic history, ours is a story of optimism and achievement and constant striving that is unique upon this earth. And that is why the rest of the world still looks to us to lead. This is a country where ordinary people find in their hearts the courage to do extraordinary things. The courage to stand up in the face of the fiercest resistance and despair and say, this is wrong and this is right. We will not settle for what the cynics tell us we have to accept. And we will reach again and again, no matter the odds, for what we know is possible. That is the conviction we must carry now in our hearts. For more on the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial, visit this show page at worldfootprints.com for a direct link. some very, very powerful moments that we experience as journalists, particularly on the dedication day. For me, watching President Obama walk past the inscription wall, America's first African-American president, as he headed towards the stage to honor the late Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. at this monumental ceremony. The great thing about that day was just to appreciate how far America has come, even in our lifetimes and uh, to go from Dr. King, who I was fortunate to see as a baby, to see President Barack Obama dedicating a memorial to him was impressive, to say the least. You know, Dr. King is the only African-American to be honored on the National Mall, along with uh, the presidents, other presidents, our our war memorials. He's not the first African-American to be honored in this monumental way. Uh, but he is the first to be honored along the National Mall. As we close, we'd like to leave you with another quote from Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. This is a quote that also appears on his memorial inscription wall. If we are to have peace on earth, our loyalties must become ecumenical rather than sectional. Our loyalties must transcend our race, our tribe, our class, and our nation. And this means we must develop a world perspective. We appreciate you inviting us into your life. 
We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we look forward to sharing another amazing journey with you on World Footprints Radio. For now, let's enjoy some words and music from Stevie Wonder. I knew in 1980 when I was in Atlanta, Georgia, and I, the night before I wrote this song that I imagined us being in the stream, being at a march, we were marching to make Dr. King's birthday a national holiday. I knew then, I touched the dream, I saw it, as I did with here today the monument. So congratulations, America, congratulations, the world. Footprints Radio with Ian and Tonya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints Media, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award-winning radio show can be heard around the globe on iHeartRadio, Stitcher, iTunes, and more. Visit worldfootprints.com for a complete list. World Footprints Radio is a leading voice in socially responsible travel. At worldfootprints.com, you'll find an archive of past broadcasts, travel news, 
reviews, and information you can use to deepen your travel experience. Listen, learn, and live it at worldfootprints.com.